He's starting to feel the cold yet. No, some aren't, some are. If it starts to settle in as the evening goes on, my only suggestion is to move closer to the person next to you. (laughs) Page 10 in your booklets. Grace and freedom. God is in the business of changing people. We saw last night that he's chosen people to be holy and blameless in his sight, to become holy and blameless, changed from being foolish and deceived and deceiving and full of malice and envy and hatred, instead being peaceable and considerate. Eager to do good is how he describes it in verse 14 of this passage. A people who belong to his very own, eager to do what is good, jumping out of their skins to do good things. God is wanting to change us to be like that. But how does God do it? Because changing people is not easy. It's worth stopping and thinking how we try to change people. Because you do it all the time, don't you? You want your friends to be better friends, don't you? And that's always a matter of them changing, not you changing. So you try to change them, don't you? You want your family to work better. You want your parents to treat you better than they do, treat you like an adult. Well, you're trying to change their behaviour. How do we do it? Well, we've really only got two weapons in our arsenal. It's called carrots and sticks. Is the picture going to come? There it is. The idea comes from an ancient fable, I think, actually, where somebody had a donkey that refused to move. Well, how do you get a donkey that doesn't want to move to move? Well, there's only two weapons you've got. You can dangle a carrot in front of its nose. And the donkey sees the carrot and says, ooh, that looks good. And so they'll take a step forward. They'll start to move. And if you keep it even further in front of their nose, they'll keep moving. If that doesn't work, if the pleasure principle doesn't work, well, you have got another alternative. It's called the stick. You can bash them on the backside, hard, and that might make them move. And so there's rewards and punishments, carrots and sticks. And in different places, in different cultures, the balance between those two seems to vary. The trend at the moment, I think, in our culture is to use more carrots than sticks in case we offend the snowflake generation. (laughs) But what are carrots and sticks? Well, Be honest, it's really just coercion, isn't it? It's manipulation by another name. We dress it up as character formation. It's getting people to do what they don't want to do by manipulating them. It's often justified. You know, for social cohesion, we can't have people just stealing cars and running away with them. We we can't have people breaking into houses. It just won't work. So, well, sticks is what we use for that, isn't it? A university uses carrots and sticks to try and get you to study. See, they assume you don't want to study. And so they offer you a university degree if you will study, if you'll hand those assignments in, if you'll do the exams with a little bit of work beforehand, then eventually if you do that long enough, they give you a degree and they think that you're willing to buy the degree with your labour, with your study. And of course, if you don't study hard enough, what do they do? They fail you. They still take your money. And they say, go away for a little while and come back when you, you're willing to give us some more money and do some more exams. They use the stick as well as the carrot to try and get you to study. And most people see God as the master of the carrot and the stick. They see religion as using that same methodology. And, of course, God has the ultimate carrot, doesn't he? It's called heaven. It's called eternal life. If you behave yourself, 
you'll get to heaven. He'll let you in. He's got a great big carrot, but he's also got a bigger stick than anybody else. If you don't do what's right, well, you go to that other place that we don't like mentioning because of the snowflake generation. <laughs> and, and then God gives us a bunch of sort of random rules. Don't do this. Don't do that. You mustn't do this. Don't touch. And then he dangles the carrot in front of us and threatens with the stick behind us so that we all behave ourselves. And when we're tempted to get out of line, then God whispers in our ear, don't you dare, watch out or I'll get you. So Christianity is normally seen by many of our peers as repressive and oppressive, as coercive, as using people's guilt trips to control them and force them to conform with repressive rules. But the fact is, carrots and sticks don't work. Well, they sort of do work. They do change behaviour. They do get you to study. But they don't actually change people. See, what the university does to you, has it made you a keen student, eager to study, eager to learn, just, just sucking it all up, every bit of information you can get? Are you like that? Anybody of you like that? Has the university been able to change your hearts by carrots and sticks? No, it doesn't work. The government uses carrots and sticks to try and get people like me to pay tax. Does it create people who love paying tax? Well, I've yet to meet one, if it is working. When my son was in primary school, he taught me a very valuable lesson in this whole area. Uh, I was on child duty when one uh, day after school he invited one of his friends oh, thanks Rosemary please don't spoil the story anyway he and his, his friend came home to our place and I got them something to drink and, and eat and then uh, my son went to his room where he had his toys and stuff and he started to play with his Lego, his quite extensive collection of Lego and his friend went into the room as well and started to play with the Lego. And my son said, no, you can't, it's mine. I, I sort of overheard this from the next room. And I thought, I'd better let this go for a little bit, hadn't I? And, and about three minutes later, I heard Andrew say, no, no, you can't play with it, it's my Lego. I thought, I've got to intervene. So I went in, I said, come outside, can I have a word with you for a minute? And so I took him out of the room where the other guy couldn't hear and I said, why won't you share your Lego with him? Yeah, when you've got enough, haven't you? And Andrew just said, it's mine. No, I'm not going to. I said to him, Andrew, how many friends do you think you'll have if you invite them home to play with you and you won't play with them? He said, it's mine. <laughs> so I said to him, Andrew, if you don't share your Lego after your friend goes home, I will take action. Now, do you hear the carrot? Do you want friends? Do you hear the stick? I'll take action. And then it struck me what I was doing, the contradictory nature of what I was doing, because I wanted him to be unselfish, and I gave him two selfish reasons to be unselfish. <laughs> that just does not work, does it? There's something contradictory, something at the heart of that that is broken, is, is wrong. It, it just does not work. God doesn't use carrots and sticks, that outward coercion that just forces people to conform reluctantly 
God wants people who are eager to do good, not reluctant to do good, forced to do good. He wants to change people's hearts from the inside. Like that woman this morning who came and to Jesus, she wasn't forced to do it. She wasn't just being responsible. No, she wanted to do it. How does that happen for us? How does God change us? Well, that's what this passage addresses directly. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, the grace of God that appeared, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. See what he's saying? He's saying it's God's grace that he uses to change people. What we've been exploring this week, and we've got another three days to explore it, it's, it's fantastic. It's the generosity of God, the gift of God to us, that's appeared. It, it appeared historically when the Lord Jesus Christ walked this planet. There was the grace of God in material form because the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. That's the grace of God appearing. It's, it's real, it's visible. If you'd been there, you could have seen it with your own eyes. But what about the carrot and the stick? Well, this passage tells us about the carrot and the stick. So what happens to the stick? That thing that people think God used to use us to sort of hold over our head and threaten us with in case we misbehave. Well, there it is exactly in verse 14. Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. What's happened to the stick? It's fallen on Jesus. In my place condemned he stood. He took my hell, my execution himself. God's stick has already fallen. That's what grace is, isn't it? And so God is no longer standing over me with a big stick. It's, it's gone. It's already fallen on Jesus himself. And the carrot? Well, look at verse 7 of chapter 3. Having been justified by God's grace, we become heirs having the hope of eternal life. When it talks about the hope of eternal life, it's actually talking about the certainty of future eternal life. We may not yet be in heaven. We may not yet have the carrot in my hands but I'm already in the will I'm an heir I will get it one day my name is on the title deeds I'm just waiting to enjoy it fully and so God is not dangling the prospect of heaven in front of us saying if you do better if you just try a little bit harder maybe maybe if you do well enough I'll give it to you no he's already guaranteed it to us and God's way of changing us is not the carrot and stick, it's not reward and punishment, but grace, that experience of his mercy that comes as we are given every spiritual blessing in Christ, as he lavishes us with his extravagant, unexpected, undeserved gifts of forgiveness and adoption. And Paul says that's what teaches us, trains us to say no to evil, and to be eager to do what is good. But how on earth does it work? Because it seems counterintuitive, if you think about it. That grace, free, extravagant grace, would change us so that we no longer want to do evil, but want to do good. Let me use an analogy. Imagine that you went down to Casuarina Prison, which I think is just south of here somewhere, full of hardened criminals, 
But you went down there and you treated the criminals with grace. You opened up all the cells, the gates to the prison and said, you're free to go. And whatever you do, we won't rearrest you. Would you lock your car tonight? I would. I would not be confident that grace would transform them. In fact, I'd expect probably it'd work the opposite way. If they got some more grace like that, if they had the guarantee that they'd never get arrested again, it would be mayhem. Remember that thought experiment you did on day one yesterday? It was only yesterday, seminar one. What if there was no law and order? What would people do? In the seminar group I was in, people said chaos. That's what would happen. Well, how does God's grace work if it removes the law and order, the carrot and stick? Well, let me try and explain how Paul thinks about it and how it actually works in practice. Under grace, we are free to do good simply because it's good. And that can only happen under grace. You see, if you're living under carrots and sticks and you do some good, why are you doing good? It's out of self-interest, isn't it? You might be helping others, but you're helping others to win some sort of reward for yourself. You might be not harming people because you want to avoid harm yourself. That is really you're just using other people. It's not genuine goodness. It's flawed at the level of motive. Many atheists have pointed out that contradiction at the heart, it seems, of all religions. All religions want people to do good, and the only re- reason they give them for doing good is because it will win them some sort of reward. They will get into heaven, they will get into paradise, they will get whatever it is that that, that religion offers. And the atheists rightly say, hold on, that if they're doing it for their own selves, it's not really good, is it? And they're right. But under grace, we're freed from looking out for my selfish benefit. I can now do good for others, not because I have to, not because there's something in it for me, but simply because I want to, because I'm eager to do good. It's only under grace that good can be really good. Grace is necessary to to be eager to do what is good, but it's not sufficient, though, as our analogy from Casuarina would show us. So we need more than that. And in this passage, we see some of the motivations that Paul gives us that come out of grace, motivations to do good, to want to do good. The first is simply the logic of grace. Come with me to verse 14 of chapter 2. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Jesus gave himself, he died on a cross to redeem us, to rescue us from all wickedness. The consequences of our wickedness, yes, condemnation, but more than that, from a life of wickedness. In chapter 3, verse 3, he talks about that life. At one time, he says, We too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. It's a pretty harsh description, isn't it? And is that what life is really like for most people in this world? Well, yes, isn't it? Controlled by our own own passions? Do you know how much pornography traffic there is on the internet these days? It boggles the mind, and I don't want to imagine it. 
<laughs> we are captive to our, our pleasures and plaints. Hated and being hated, envy and malice. Have you ever uh, spent time in a playground at school? <laughs> That's what happens, isn't it? Workplaces. Some recent research by Professor Gary Martins about workplace bullying in Australia concluded that a half, 50% of all workers experience workplace bullying. He called it the silent epidemic. It's sweeping through every industry, every office block, in our city, uh, in our country. Domestic violence, in the home, from your own family, from the people who should be caring and protecting for you. Well, our police are called to an incident of domestic violence every two minutes of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year in Australia. Every two minutes. It is everywhere. Yes, that's the life of wickedness. And what has happened is that Jesus has redeemed us from that. And if you've been redeemed out of it, why would you go back to it? Think about those guys who've just been rescued from the cave in Thailand. They were caught there for almost two weeks, 13 of them, the soccer team and their coach. And, and enormous effort has gone into redeeming them back to safety out of the cave. All the divers, all the expense, even one man losing his life in order to do it. Now imagine they get back to safety at the entrance to the cave. Are they going to jump back into the water and start exploring all those dangerous caverns again? Well, they can. It's not illegal to do it. It's just dumb, isn't it? <laughs> Why would you do it? It's crazy. It's, it's illogical. It's unthinkable that they would do that, isn't it? Well, you've been rescued from wickedness. Why do you want to go back to it? It just doesn't make sense. The Bible has an image for it. It says it's like a dog returning to its vomit. Sorry if you've just eaten dinner. It's not very pleasant to think about that, but... You see a dog vomit up and you know that it's eaten something that has made it sick. And some dogs in their stupidity will start to eat what they've vomited up. Yeah, yuck. Oh, can't think about it. What would you do to a dog that was doing that? Give him a little gentle kick, wouldn't you? And say, don't be so dumb. That's what I'd do. It's just, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? That's the logic of redemption. Jesus has rescued you out of that life. For goodness sake, don't go back to it. It's not that you can't. It's not that if you do, you'll be disqualified. It's just dumb, isn't it? Secondly, he talks about the hope that we have. Verse 13, we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Christians live in hope that our spiritual blessings will be fulfilled in a new world, in, in, in a resurrection and recreation, that then we'll know Jesus face to face more completely than we know him now. And you and I will be made completely righteous, holy and blameless, totally good. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? See, I live in fear every day that I'll say something stupid. It'll just come out without me thinking about it because that's what I'm like. I say things that hurt people. And if I've hurt you, I'm sorry, but it just keeps happening. Imagine being so different that I won't even need to be afraid that things like that will slip out of my mouth. That's going to be wonderful. Wonderful for me and wonderful for you. 
And imagine you being like that as well. So I'm no longer afraid that you'll take what you know about me and paste it up on Facebook or somewhere so everyone knows my secrets. Imagine I'm confident that you will love me with integrity and faithfulness every day. That would be fantastic, wouldn't it? And that's what we're hoping for. Well, if that's what you're hoping for and longing for and looking forward to, are you going to sort of use slander now? You're going to say, ah, I love the tidbits that I get. I'm going to spread them everywhere on Facebook and everywhere else as well. I presume not. Of course, we're hoping for something much better than that. Jesus has promised he will bring it one day. And thirdly, gratitude. We saw it this morning, didn't we? The woman who comes, the one forgiven much, loves much. Now, can you imagine her as she comes full of that love, weeping tears over Jesus, anointing his feet, and the same movement, crunching his feet under his feet, under her feet, breaking all the bones in his feet. I can't imagine that happening. When gratitude is, is what you feel, you don't do that to the person you feel the gratitude towards, do you? It just doesn't compute. I was recently at a wedding of a couple of uh, students from UWA who graduated. Um, Both of them came from terrific families. Uh, One, eight kids in the family, the other one, just a couple of kids. But obviously families where there was a genuine uh, love and affection for each other. And each of them, the, the bride and the groom, spent three or four minutes just wanting to express their appreciation to their parents. Both of them had tears streaming down their faces as they tried to say enough, the right words of their appreciation, their gratitude to your parents, to their parents. Now, do you think that immediately after saying those things, they could have walked outside and put a brick through the windscreen of their parents' car? (laughs) Of course not. Gratitude just moves you in the opposite direction to that, doesn't it? So what's the best thing anybody's ever done for you? I hope you can think of some things, some terrific things that maybe your parents have done, some of your best friends who've who've done things for you that you you didn't believe was possible. It is so good that those things happen. But I suspect when you compare them, they're nothing compared to Jesus, are they? Who gave his life for you and for me. Gratitude isn't something where you're obliged to give it. Come on, show a bit more gratitude, you ungrateful sod. That's not what gratitude's like. Gratitude wells up as you think about what someone's done for you. And it doesn't come as a responsibility. It doesn't come as something that that you're sort of reluctant to show, but you're better. It, It just comes when people are gracious to you. And under the extravagant grace of God, that love, of the person forgiven much just changes how we live. It changes everything. If you love Jesus, if you know how much you've been forgiven, you want to please him, don't you? And it's a motive that comes from the heart. It's a behaviour that is the overflow of a heart filled with love for Jesus. But there's more. This passage also talks about the content of goodness and how grace brings that Come with me to chapter 3, verse 2, where he encourages us not to slander, but instead to be peaceable and considerate, always gentle or humble towards everyone. And then if you've you've got an NIV, NIV misses out the first word of the next sentence. 
be gentle, be humble towards everyone because at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. Do you see the logic of that? Why be humble towards people? Well, because I'm just like them except for the grace of God. And the grace of God comes to me not because I'm better than them, but despite being the same as them. So how can I look down on them? Pride is so normal. We almost fail to recognise how wrong it is. But the heart of most sin comes from pride and arrogance, I think. You don't deserve the truth, so I won't give it to you. You don't deserve my attention, so I'll just focus on myself. And pride is so endemic. I recognise it in myself. I, I sometimes have discussions with people where we have a sort of alternate points of view and, well, it descends into an argument. And after the argument, after I go home, I almost always rerun the argument in my mind. And I go over what they said and I said. And when I rerun it, I always work out the right thing I should have said to win the argument. In every rerun I've ever done in my imagination, I've always won. Which is just pure arrogance, isn't it? As if I'm always right. As if I'm cleverer than other people. What a load of rubbish. That's just pride. It's not reality. Pride infects our hearts, but grace teaches us to be humble, not by humiliating us, but by being gracious to us. By God's grace, I know that I'd be just like them, except God has been kind to me. Or maybe I'm still like them. And lastly, In God's grace, there's a new dynamic at work. In verse 5, he saved us not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy, through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. The Holy Spirit renews us, changes us from the inside. See, the Holy Spirit's not outside me, whispering in my ear, come on, Tim, don't do that, coercing me, you mustn't do that. No, the Holy Spirit is inside me. He takes up residence in the very core of my being to give me new desires and new hatreds, a capacity to become eager to do what is good. The Holy Spirit himself is a gift of God's incredible grace. And so his grace of the Spirit transforms me. Remember Casuarina? I have no confidence that criminals let out of there would do good because of grace. But with the Spirit, they would. This is an essential aspect of the grace that changes us because it changes us from the inside. So do you see how grace, God's way of changing us, is grace all the way? And that means there are things God doesn't use that we might think he does. He doesn't use guilt and coercion. God is not standing over you saying, do right or else. There's just no or else there. He isn't reminding us at every turn of how we keep blowing it, pointing the finger saying, you failed, you failed. Try harder, do better, twisting the guilt till I pull my socks up. Now, you know who deals in guilt? Satan deals in guilt. 
He uses it to condemn us, to dishearten us, but not God. Of course we fail. Ridiculous, stupid to try and hide it. But what is God's response to my failure? Christ died for that, and he died for that. He died for you, and he died for me. It's grace. Remember Romans 5? Where sin increases, what happens? Grace just super increases. Like the beanbag, it just absorbs whatever sin I might do. It doesn't come back to bite. It's so different, I think, to our normal experiences of life, even of Christian life. In most of our families, whether our parents said it to us or not, we all got the message that we weren't quite good enough. The pressure came on to reach the unreachable standards that our parents might have set for us, or we thought they'd set for us. That's the carrots and sticks, isn't it? Even in our churches, unfortunately, that's the message we so often hear. You're not good enough. I must try harder. You're not committed enough. You need to do more. You need to do better. And maybe then God's blessings would start to flow. I remember sitting down with a group of 20 or so uni students, all of whom had grown up in Christian families. About a third of them were pastor's kids. And I just asked them, do you feel like what you've experienced in your life, in your Christian life so far, has been grace or coercion? And without a, without a second's hesitation, they all said coercion, which is really sad, isn't it? Part of it is we project it. We project it onto God, we project it onto other people, because that, that's the way the world works. But it's also that, well, maybe what Titus was supposed to do hasn't been done. See what Titus is to do in verse 15? He's to teach these things. Teach the grace of God. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. If you haven't experienced God's grace, you've experienced instead guilt and coercion, can I apologise to you? I'm sorry that's been your experience. I apologise that you have got the wrong end of the stick. And maybe through that, your understanding of God and the way you respond to God has been distorted. Can I urge you not to go by your experience of that, but by your experience of Jesus, who gave himself for you to redeem you from all wickedness, who's lavished you with grace, forgiveness and adoption, a place in his family and a place in his eternal kingdom. And most outsiders assume Christianity is coercive like that. But I hope you've seen tonight it's not. That God doesn't use guilt and coercion, nor does he use rules. He doesn't throw a truckload of rules at us. Okay, now you've become a Christian. You've got to read your Bible. You've got to go to church. Well, twice a Sunday you've got to go to church. And you've got to give money and you've got to pray for at least 30 minutes a day. Or if you're really serious, two hours a day. You've got to evangelise. You've, you've got to do this. You've got to do that. Now, God wants people who are eager to do good. And you don't create eagerness to do good by giving people a whole lot of rules. See, how do you create generous people who want to give? Well, rules about giving 10% don't create that. They just make me ask questions like 10% of gross or net before tax or after tax. <laughs> it's only the generous work of God to me, experiencing God's grace, that he who was rich became poor so that by his poverty I might become so incredibly rich that will change me 
by the work of the Spirit, to somebody who's generous, somebody who would love to have more money because there are so many things I'd like to give it to. And it's only when we're free from rules and coercion that we can freely give. And interestingly, if you read the New Testament, there are no specific rules. There's nothing about 10%. There's nothing, nothing about you must go to church on Sundays once, twice or three times. It does tell us about what good is, the attitudes, the lifestyle that is good. But there aren't any specific rules like that. Now, the Christian life is one lived under grace. That's the living dynamic of the Christian life, is the grace of God, knowing it, experiencing it, being transformed by it. And living under grace means there are no have-to or else's. God doesn't force us and coerce us to do anything. But I suspect most of us live as if God does. We keep talking of, I have to do this, I have to do that. I must do this, I must do that, I have to pray, I must be good, I must be nice. And our language, even if we don't realise it, reflects the way we think. See, I have to, I have to do study, I have to read my Bible, I have to go to Christian Union meetings, as if I'm some sort of victim, as if I've got no choice. And it always has that sense of resentment to it. But you don't have to. No. If I don't pray today... God won't kick me out of his kingdom. He won't disqualify me. He won't punish me by not answering my prayers for a month just to get even. No, grace breaks all the have-tos. There's nothing I have to do. And that means I'm free to do what I want to do. And when you say it like that, it sounds really dangerous, doesn't it? Now, if you have children, you'd never be game to say you're just free to do what you want to do. Man, chaos would reign. But let me ask you, What do you want to do? Because when I stop and think about it, I do want to read my Bible. Because my Bible keeps telling me more of this extravagant grace of God. It is such a rich, brilliant story. And it's not just a story, it's true, it's real. Now, I know it's not so simple. I do want to read my Bible and I don't want to read my Bible. There's, There's a tension there, but if you break it down, if you sit me down and say, Tim, what do you really want to do? I do want to read my Bible. I may not be good at it. I want to do better at it, but I do want to read it. What do you want to do? Do you want to treat people with love and care? Do you want to share the gospel of grace with those who know nothing of it? Do you want to pray to your heavenly father who hears you with all his attention every time you turn to him? If you're a Christian, you do, don't you? You might not be very good at it, but you do want to do it. The Holy Spirit is at work. There's an eagerness to do good. To do good because you want to, not because you have to. Isn't that you? You are free to do what you want to do. Because it's grace all the way from the beginning, through the middle, to the end. I think many of us, were converted under the idea that it begins with grace. Whatever you've done, whatever you've been, God will welcome you. He'll wipe your slate clean. You have a fresh start. You have a second chance. But when you say it like that, there's a catch to it, isn't there? You've got a second chance, but don't you blow the second chance. As if it starts with grace, but it goes on with effort. But do you see what this passage is saying? It starts with grace 
It continues in grace and it ends with grace. God doesn't just give me a second chance. He gives me a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth and a sixth and a five hundredth and a five thousandth and a five millionth and a because it's grace all the way. The ongoing experience for all Christians is that we live every day under the grace of God. And that is what transforms us. That's what God uses to change us. So to be a Christian means a life of genuine freedom. That might be surprising to you. Because when you become a Christian, you bow the knee to Jesus. You submit to his rule. You say, Jesus, I want you now to determine what is good and evil, not me. But we discover, having bowed the knee to Jesus, he's a king who loves us. Amazingly, he rules with our interests at heart. He's a king who died for us when we were rebels and outlaws. He took the stick, my stick. He gave us the carrot. And he refuses to coerce us and manipulate us. He sets us free to serve him wholeheartedly. We have his favour. We can't lose it. We can't win it. It really is amazing grace. If you're not yet a Christian, I hope tonight has clarified things for you, maybe even surprised you, because it may be that you've been suspicious of Christianity, suspicious of God, that God's just trying to guilt you into behaving. God is, is there mainly trying to take away your chance of having some fun in life. I hope you've seen that that's the total opposite of what the true and living God is actually like. Yes, guilt is real. I'm guilty. You're guilty. But his response to guilt is not to use it against you, but to offer you forgiveness, to offer you welcome, if you're willing. Tonight I want to give you an opportunity, if you're not yet a Christian, to become a Christian, to change your heart, to change your mind, to change the direction of your life, to submit to the grace of God, admit that you need it, and welcome it gladly as he welcomes you gladly into his kingdom of grace. Now, that won't be appropriate for many of us, but for some of us it might be appropriate. You might be at that point where you say, yes, I want to receive the grace of God to me. If that is you, here's the sort of thing that you can say. We need to talk to God. God, I'm sorry for pushing you out of my life. I've done evil and been evil. Please forgive me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place. Please help me to be eager to do good. Amen. If that is what you want to say, I'm, I'm going to pray that. I'm going to ask all of us just to close our eyes, bow our heads. Even if you're a Christian, you can probably pray it. But this is especially for those who've never said this to God. I'm going to just pray it, echo it in your own heart, if this is what you want to say. God, I'm sorry for pushing you out of my life. I've done evil and been evil. Please forgive me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place. Please help me to be eager to do good. Amen. Can I say if you've heard that prayer, it's unthinkable that God, sorry, if you've said that prayer, it's unthinkable that God wouldn't hear it, isn't it? Of course he has. He's heard, he's forgiven you. You've started a new life. Two things I want to say to you. 
It's a new life, and like most new lives, like most infants, you need a bit of help, so get some help. And one way to do that, second thing, is tell someone, tell a Christian friend you know that you've prayed that prayer tonight, and maybe they can help you make those first baby steps in this new life you've started under the grace of God. Welcome. It's great to have you in the family. Amen.